My name is Sarah Dudnitz, and you're listening to PR Hangover, a public relations podcast brought to you by Grand Valley State University's PRSSA chapter. All right, welcome to PR Hangover, everybody. Um, We have another virtual episode with a guest who's been on before, um, Derek DeVries. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I am Derek DeVries. I am Director of Digital and Social Strategy at Lambert & Company and a professional advisor to the Grand Valley PRSSA chapter as well, and and also married to uh, Dr. Adrian Wallace. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, sure. Yeah. So um, for those listening, if you're not aware, this is part of um, a series that we're doing called Contemporary Legends, and it's based on a book written by Derek and some others, Adrian included, um, a while ago during... Um, their time at GVSU, and it's just about some really notable public relations professionals. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how this project came to be, and you haven't listened to the first episode with Adrienne Wallace yet, I would definitely recommend doing that and learning a little bit more about how this came to be. Um, But for now, let's just go ahead and jump in. Derek, do you want to give us um, sort of a general overview of who you picked for this project and why you picked them? Sure, yeah. So I picked uh, Marilyn Laurie, as the, uh, the person that I wrote about, one of the sort of uh, next generation of uh, founding public relations professionals in the practice. And she is notable for many reasons, um, but some of the ones that were interesting to me were uh, she spent a lot of her time, the bulk of her career at AT&T, which obviously is a giant uh, corporation. It's a you know Fortune 50 company. Uh, and she was a, a pioneer and a groundbreaking uh, uh, woman who, I mean, she was the the first woman to join AT&T's executive committee, uh, which is, you know, the 10 people in the organization that, you know, drive decision making uh, at the, high, the highest level. Uh, she's the first uh, woman to head PR for a Fortune 50 company. Um, and, and most interestingly, um, during that time, she helped lead AT&T through the breakup of the Bell system, which we're kind of, we're a few years from it now, a few decades actually from it now, but it was a huge shakeup. Uh, and, and as someone who's interested in the internet and digital technology and sort of uh, the history and media, media history, it can't be understated how important the landscape underlying all the technology that we rely on was and, and how that breakup of the bell system, uh, you know, what a significant impact it had on uh, everything, including the advent of the internet. So that was uh, some of the, some of the reasons that she was very compelling to write about. That's awesome. One thing that I thought was really interesting when I was reading over this chapter, and during her time at AT and T, um, you wrote or you quoted someone rather. It turned into a powerful lesson on the limits of public relations that sometimes the facts don't matter. And that was in regards to a huge crisis at AT&T that she um, sort of had to deal with and, and work with. Do you kind of want to go over what that crisis was and then what this quote means in a crisis? Sure, yeah. So that particular crisis, I believe, was the Focus Magazine mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, and what had happened, it's something that actually is... I don't know. We see it more today, I think, because there's less 
oversight of things that go out. You know, we don't do as much print anymore. Everything's digital, so it's sort of a faster process. But uh, AT&T had, I mean, as a, as a huge global company, they had, I mean, they have, you know, tens of thousands of employees, and, and employee communication is a, an important role that um, that uh, the PR department plays. Um, and they had a magazine, a company magazine, um, that was published to all employees. And in one of the issues, there was a graphic of the world and sort of um, uh, an illustration of little, uh, you know, characters uh, portraying different uh aspects of the world and on on africa unfortunately somebody had selected a monkey as Mm -hmm. the little character to represent that region of the world which is obviously insensitive and Mm -hmm. uh uh, on many levels and obviously caused employees to uh to be very upset and rightly so and it also sort of one of the the good things that came out of it was at&t found that despite they were sort of an uh an uh, sort of a more a progressive company or a more advanced company, uh, particularly back then in terms of even having diversity and inclusion initiatives. But they discovered that, you know, even though they had put time and, and, and effort into these initiatives, there were still a lot of people that worked for AT&T that felt like second-class citizens and, and didn't feel that they had uh, an equal voice within the organization. And this uh, incident put a, a fine point on that. It sort of highlighted that even though, you know, I mean, print publications, especially back then, I mean, they they were overlooked by so many editors. I mean, you would, you would have, you know, multiple layers of editing for something like this. And for something to slip past that is, it's not just uh, an oversight, it's also sort of an, it puts a, a fine point that there's not somebody in that approval process in the scene, sort of the senior leadership of the company that's bringing that perspective to the table so that something like this um, is, is weeded out before, before it even becomes an issue that, that there's a, that there's a, a well-rounded representation of all the, the views of the company. So that was, uh, that was something that um, really defined uh, her career. Um, they, you know, reinvested in, in all of those, uh, those programs, they just sort of, they it realized that they weren't doing enough and they needed to go further. So it gave them an opportunity, uh, the opportunity of insight into uh, something that was simmering inside the company. And um, fortunately they had the culture that allowed them to uh, address it uh, honestly and openly and, and really make, you know, follow the page principles and really make, uh, you know, prove it with action, take concrete actions to help ensure that something like that uh, didn't happen again, but that it was also a, a learning experience that the company still had a great deal of work to do with respect to diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. When I think about this crisis, I sort of think about everything that we're dealing with now with COVID-19 and how that's affecting so many companies and so many brands. Um, and that quote still, I think, resonates with me so much. Sometimes the facts don't matter because yes. I've seen so many people pointing fingers. And I think it's just our natural human tendency to um, want to put the blame somewhere else when we're facing situations like this. And when Marilyn was in the situation, you know, what happened wasn't necessarily just her fault. Maybe she did, you know, play a role in, um, in this crisis. You know, things were overlooked by everybody. But Um, I think so easily she could have just, people could have pointed fingers and things like that. So I just, I just think that's really interesting. I don't know. Do you have any more thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
the idea that facts don't matter is um, something that we see increasingly. Uh, there seems to be sort of a push against um, against too much um, emphasis on specific facts, and that's because people have uh, perceptions that are that are very strong, that are grounded in their experience. And if you sat down and and you know tried to make the you know any given action, you know whether it was this uh, this publication at AT and T or whether it's something that the company does around COVID nineteen, you can try to you know, uh, array the facts and, and uh, dig down with a microscope and try to align, you know, a defense strategy for something. But you really have to consider, is this part of a larger problem? And does trying to break this down into sort of factual components help us get past it or help us learn from it or help us grow as an organization? Or does that just um, turn people off and reinforce their their pre-existing uh, conceptions of what's going on? That's kind of what we see with respect to uh, so many issues, diversity and inclusion among them, but also sort of class and wealth and and, and a lot of other issues. People people feel certain things and they 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 have a, a, a sense of the world that that's informed by their their experience. And yeah, the facts might not exactly uh, support their particular take on things, but the fact that they hold that opinion still has value, and it's important that companies and PR pros understand uh, the the heft and weight that those perceptions have, and that you know presenting more facts is not always the the way to address a situation where you have a conflict like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think issues like like this one are very emotionally charged too and when you're you can't fight with logic in a situation like that so no yeah no and, and it's also something where you have to realize as an organization no nothing exists independently of anything else mm-hmm. um at&t for its progressive policies is still was still in and we are still in a place where there's a lot of inequity in terms of uh, of employment of especially at the at the highest levels of, of, uh, of organizations. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, it's the, um, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, and Marilyn Laurie is the first, you know, woman to uh, be on the executive committee at at t that says something about where we are, mm-hmm. you know, even though this company had these diverse policies and, and programs, they still hadn't embraced lead, you know, diversity at the highest level, um, of, of, uh, of the organization. And you have to account for the fact that there are other, uh, players out there in the world, and you're being held to the same standard that they are too. So, um, you know, you see a big corporation, and you you know you line them up with other big corporations, and when something goes wrong, it's it's endemic. It's not it's not something that's specific to that organization. It's something that's uh, indi- indicative of the larger um, you know world that we that we operate in. And so, understanding that you know. Uh, that's something that we, our clients, uh, when we when we have when we run into crises, um, it's important to consider that even uh, another a crisis for another company might be a crisis for your company because you're in the same space. Um, you may catch collateral um, uh, damage from uh, something that happens, even though you may be operating, uh, you know, well within the bounds of of what's uh, you know proper. Um, it's still important to, to realize that often entire categories of companies are treated, you know, through the same, are viewed through the same lens. And so it can be challenging to get our clients sometimes to understand that, that they need to 
understand that they're not always going to be held only to their own standard. They're going to be viewed through the, by the public through the lens of the worst actors in their industry. Hmm. I want to go back to um, something that we were talking about a little bit earlier along the theme of crisis communications. Um, later on in your chapter, you mentioned how it was AT&T's underlying communications culture and not specifically their crisis communications plan that sort of helped them thrive after this crisis and thrive out of it. Um, mm-hmm. why, why do you think that is? And why, I guess, just being a student, being in school, I feel like there's so much emphasis on crisis communications plans. Um, but if, if this is the case and if underlying communications culture um, can play such a big role should companies be paying more attention to that? Or how, how do those two ideas sort of hang in balance with each other? Sure. Yeah, it's so AT&T from its origins was a government uh, regulated monopoly mm-hmm. um, just because of the way telecom communications work. Um, you can't really have, you know, it's not like, um, you know, if you were to manufacture cars, you know, there can be multiple auto manufacturers um, and they can each put a product out there. But if you're laying cable um, or sending satellites into space, it's difficult to have many companies doing that alongside each other. And in many cases, it requires such an investment that the government often subsidizes it um, or at least grants a company um you know, monopoly because there's there's no cost benefit for for a, uh, an internet service provider or a tele uh, you know a telecommunications provider mm-hmm. to um, roll uh, cable all the way out to rural communities to every little house. It's really only cost effective in, in dense urban areas, and but for having um, sort of a, a monopoly but also government subsidies, they wouldn't you know rural areas would not have internet access or telephone access, and so back in the day, telephone access is is more of what what we're speaking of when we're, we're talking about the era that uh, Marilyn Laurie was working at AT&T. And so that freed them up because they were not um, an organ at the time it was from their founding. They were not really an organization that had to necessarily be relentlessly devoted to profit every quarter. Um, that focus on, um, you know, quarterly earnings and quarterly profits uh, that, you know, publicly traded companies, but really, I mean, you know, companies writ large, um, that they have to uh, embrace um, in order to stay competitive was not something that that was uh, as much of a pressure on AT&T. Certainly, you know, staying profitable um, was important to them, but being a, a, a monopoly allowed them to have other priorities as well. And so um, having priorities like um, research and development, I mean, Bell Labs, uh, one of the things that, that the Bells were, were famous for, um, you know, the, the sort of um, research facility that invented the transistor, one of the, probably, probably the most um, significant technological advancement in the past 100 years um, that still today uh, is something that powers every electronic device we have. Um, organizations that have a little bit of freedom or have a, a broader set of priorities than just profit uh, tend to be the ones, um, and, and AT&T would fall into this category, that are able to do better long-term sort of planning and strategy and development. And in the case of AT&T, um, that's, the, that's the company that, uh, that Arthur W. Page comes out of, that he, he worked at AT&T for decades um, before becoming, a, you know, being involved in politics and being a statesman and all sorts of other things. Um, the, the, having that uh, 
ability, that freedom to you know have the organization invest its time in something other than just generating money, but also thinking long term about the organization, um, is what sets you up to have that framework where a company culture can allow for um, integrity and can allow for uh, thinking about the long term. And it's sort of it's something that's kind of like. Uh, it sort of encapsulates the difference between public relations and marketing or advertising. Those are very transactional, very um, short-term focused uh, disciplines, whereas public relations is much more long-term focused. It's relationship focused. Mm -hmm. And so that approach as applied to an entire company means that um, they're able to do the, you know, lay the groundwork that you need to have, any communications practice, but in particular a crisis communications um, practice, um, function effectively. Uh, that's one of the working with a lot of global companies, uh, and, we're, and we're working with some right now with the the COVID nineteen pandemic. It is a real challenge. I mean, when you have literally hundreds of thousands of employees all over the world, it's a it's a huge challenge to get anything to um, sort of like you know, be metabolized into the organization's bloodstream. Um, it's, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a new practice, a new policy, it takes a whole lot of work. And if you can do that work beforehand, it makes it a lot easier to respond to things on the back end. And if you also set up the systems of accountability or the systems that give people the freedom and the agency to do what they need to do for the for the long-term best interests of the company and they've internalized what those interests are um that's when things run effectively and so for example you know one of the crises that that at&t dealt with when maryland lawyer was there was a massive outage um and they the, they note that um it's, it's actually sort of one of those cases that ends up in you know a textbook but they didn't even have to consult their their crisis plan because everybody knew it everybody knew mm -hmm. Um, what role they needed to play and what the ultimate priority was. There wasn't ever um, any worrying or discussions that had to be had about what are we going to conceal and what are we going to make public in terms of information. They just knew we're going to be transparent about all of this. And then invariably that's especially now uh, with the sort of radical transparency introduced by all of the digital uh, means of communication we have, that's, that's the only really viable um, approach because it will come out whether it's through a whistleblower whether it's through an incidental disclosure when some documents um, happen to be discovered somewhere or down the road um, when somebody with a fresh pair of eyes looks at something within the organization you can't hide everything anything forever and so companies it's it's actually even in my sort of sh relatively short time in in the field um, of you know I've been in, working at this about two decades I can remember it's much easier now to have a conversation about companies being open and transparent than it was 20 years ago when I started, when there was still a pretty good chance that if they decided to hide some information, nobody would find out about it. Mm -hmm. Unless they had a really tenacious journalist or there was somebody that was willing to risk their livelihood to speak up about something from within the company, um, it was really difficult uh, for you know negative information to come out if the company didn't want it to. And so... Um, that's something that AT&T embraced. That's it's you know they were essentially the the model in which uh, you know the page principles were infused was uh, was AT&T since that's that's where uh, he originated and where he he picked up his experience. So Maryland benefited from that legacy and that groundwork that had been that had been laid in the organization 
um, to be able to do the right thing moving forward. It's something that, um, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons that she was even brought into the company. Um, the idea that a company would be interested in environmentalism and corporate social responsibility, especially back then, it wasn't, you know, uh, definitely wasn't a mainstream practice. It really only took off in the late 90s. Uh, not you know coincidentally not coincidentally with the advent of the the internet taking off and the you know transparency and, and ability for individuals to communicate that that produced they, it allowed them to be ahead of their time and to set up some some structures and, and some practices that are now mainstream but were very much not so back then um you said something that i would love to hear a little bit more about if that's okay um, with everything that you've talked about with the radical transparency that's been introduced in public relations and with the COVID-19 pandemic that's happening right now, um, and you talked about how you're working with some global clients, how do you think that the crisis that we're facing right now um, will affect the communication strategies of, of big global clients in the future, if you had to predict that? Yeah, it's a great question. They are some are stumbling some are doing are doing well um the great thing you know as as the saying goes in every i think it's been attributed to to many people but in every crisis there is opportunity um but only if you want to look for it i would i would add that sort of um that caveat um because there are plenty of companies that won't learn anything from this um and and it's you know uh it's it's their loss but there are there are plenty of companies that are learning from this and that's I mean, it's everything from um, tactical improvements to how they communicate, um, adopting new ways of communicating. Essentially, we've had to, um, you know, uh, quickly, instantaneously create a, a, a remote workforce um, for, you know, all, all around the globe. And we're, you know, we have the tools to do that. The great thing is, I mean, in part due to companies like AT&T, mm -hmm. we, have, uh, we have the tools now to do that. And the interesting thing is that We've had these capabilities, but what has prevented us from doing more of this is some of those same perceptions that are uh, that are that are not necessarily addressable by facts. Um, these old perceptions that unless you see somebody in the office working, they're not really working. Mm -hmm. You know, that's those are some, some of those perceptions are what has prevented us from going online. And even with our in our own company, it's been interesting to see we've found other ways to accomplish and advance the culture that we have so spontaneously employees set up happy hours on friday so we all kind of log into microsoft teams and uh and have a beverage and and, and connect with each other at the end of the week that's so uh, and fun. That just sort of just sort of arose naturally you know somebody yeah. somebody wanted to get together we, we miss seeing each other in the office because we are a close a close team and so there's a there's a um we found a, a different outlet for that um, and so I think that's that's where um, we see the biggest opportunity for change is what are these established sort of traditions for doing business that we can we find that we're able to do without because of this crisis. Um, and then of course, this will be a, um, a watershed opportunity for all organizations to reevaluate their priorities, their commitment to the safe and health, safety and health of their employees. Uh, you know, now more than ever, that is um, front and center, and and delaying um, has you know tremendous impact. Uh, you know, the companies that delayed um, furloughing workers or or um, 
you know, putting into place safety measures at work to guard against COVID-19, people will remember that. And that will make, you know, how companies perform during this time is going to impact their ability to recruit talented people for decades to come. Because if they if they mess it up badly enough, they could really do uh, long term damage that will take a, a, quite a while to to repair. And then you know potentially, I mean, there's also all the business impacts. Um, people are scaling back, they're pausing, and that's causing massive disruptions. Um, there will be large systemic uh, factor you know uh, effects from this. We're likely to have. I mean, some economists are are projecting that this recession could be worse than. The 2008 re- recession, which was the worst one since the Great Depression, mm-hmm. we're already seeing unemployment rates creeping up to the point that they were at in the Great Depression. And so that may cause systemic changes. I mean, at the, at the political level, we may have um, a different political landscape when when this is, is, uh, is all said and done. It's going to be, um, I mean, you can't, you can't uh, overstate how significant the changes will be to everything that we do and how business is done. Um, you know, it's, it's putting a fine point on how do we protect workers? How do we keep the economy going? Uh, what role does the private sector have to play and what role does the government have to play? We may be seeing uh, that the government may need to play a larger role. Um, as we saw the giant CARES Act that was passed, uh, I think, you know, 10% of the U.S.'s annual GDP uh, is accounted for in, a, in something of that size. I think it's the largest government sort of relief package of any g20 country and so you know we're going to find out if, if it's enough it may not be especially the longer the, the, the crisis drags on but these will be huge uh systemic structural changes that we're going to see uh moving forward what's reassuring is, is good communication doesn't change it's about transparency and openness and, and knowing your audiences and building relationships um, all of that stuff, you know, all that sort of core, whether it's uh, page principles or core, just good public relations tactics um, is what's uh, sustaining our clients very well. And then going back to Marilyn's life, is there anything else that you think is really noteworthy or any good lessons that we can take from her work? Yeah, I think she has, there's a really great sort of lesson in her, um, the start of her career. So we're um, co- conveniently and coincidentally, it's the 50th anniversary of Earth Day on, on April 22nd. Um, and Marilyn Laurie was one of the founding uh, members of Earth Day. She was uh, um, you know, a, an unemployed uh, stay-at-home mom um, back in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. And in 1970, um, when the first, first Earth Day happened, she was instrumental in the committee that put that together. She handled the comms for the whole Northeast region. And it was a uh, you know an event that was started by Senator Gaylord Nelson uh, of Wisconsin, um, and sort of a national outreach of you know grassroots uh, volunteers like Marilyn helped carry this forward. And her uh, you know most significantly, there were a lot of um, uh, individual activities that happened across the country. So the the musician and activist Arturo Sandoval was down um, in the Southwest uh, organizing and and. Um, and had an event on the day of on Earth Day, and Maryland's uh, part was uh, in New York, and they were able to close down um, some of the, a part of the city downtown. And and you know Paul Newman, who you know I don't know it depends it depends on how old your on how, <laughs> how old the audience is, but uh, you know at the, certainly at the time he would have been at the height of his uh, popularity. Uh, Paul Newman and, and uh, Pete Seeger, the Seeger, the um, the folk singer, um, were were speakers at the event. 
Um, and it was a, it was a huge success and, and it's, you know, remain the greatest testament is that it's still around today. We're still celebrating Earth Day um, 50 years later, which is really remarkable. One of the things that makes it also significant is that around that time, it was one of the events that helped raise consciousness about environmental issues. And there was a slew of legislation that was passed right around that time. So, you know, 1970 Earth Day happens right before that. We were coming to coming to grips with the effects of pollution on the country and the need to do something different. And so in, in 1970, you see a major re, uh, rewrite of the Clean Air Act. The Lead-Based Paint Poisoning Prevention Act was passed in 1970, Environmental Quality Improvement Act, Endangered Species Act, you know, in the subsequent years, the Safe Water Drinking Act of particular interest now that we've discovered so many municipalities have um, lead service lines that could potentially be unsafe. Um, and, and it's that legal framework that allows us to address them. Um, things like the Occupational Health and Safety Act, OSHA, which is, you know, watershed worker protection uh, legislation, uh, the Toxic Substance Control, so Clean Water Act, all these things sort of um, helped come out of this environmental movement, things that have had a real meaningful impact on cleaner water, cleaner air, uh, better quality of life for people. She was there sort of at the beginning, and it was that interest and that passion and that willing to willingness to volunteer that helped get her um, a... Uh, you know, a, a, a column writing for the New York Times uh, after after Earth Day was uh, was organized, and then that was what helped attract the attention of AT and T, and she was recruited to come in. And her, you know, sort of uh, willingness to pitch in and try new things, and um, you know, learn on the job. Her career is one of, of constant learning um, throughout the job, learning new disciplines that ultimately helped make her be a truly effective leader. Um, and that's sort of a great lesson that. You know, it's important to uh, follow your passions, and those can be the things that present you with opportunity. So, you know, one of the things that we talk to uh, all the PR students about is getting involved, whether it's with PRSSA or with um, Grand PR or, you know, in the community or making sure that you have internships so that you're giving your time somewhere and continuing to do that as, a, as an adult and as a professional. Those those sorts of activities are the kind of thing that help build the relationships or give you the uh, opportunity to learn or the exposure to new ideas that help make you a better professional and help make you um, more desirable in the workplace. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Derek. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed listening to PR Hangover. If you'd like, you can give us a follow on Twitter at GV underscore PRSSA, and you can check out our show notes at GVPRSSA.com.